0: Hello and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. The Biden administration recently issued an executive order that was quickly followed by a speech from Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen discussing a new approach to cryptocurrency and digital assets. On today's show, I'm joined by my colleague, Clark Flint Barr, Senior Policy Advisor at Chainalysis. Clark and I have a wide-ranging discussion on what this order means for the crypto industry, how crypto is influencing politics, and if DAO's built for lobbying are a good thing. I hope you enjoy the show. I have with me uh, my colleague, Clark Flint Barr, who's been with Chainalysis for the last year, and she has been my go-to. Anytime there's been uh, regulatory policy, legislative action on Capitol Hill related to crypto that has made no sense to me, I've, uh, I've immediately gone to Clark. Uh, And she's been able to simplify it for me. And over the last couple of weeks, Clark, we've had a ton of activity happening on the Hill. And so I I wanted to invite you on the show. So for all our listeners, we could get down to the, what does all this actually mean? So welcome.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. I feel like I've I've finally made it. I'm on a podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is this your first one?
1: It is, yeah. And actually, just the other day, a former colleague of mine was saying, you know, I wish Chainalysis had a podcast. You do such good reports, but I spend all this time in the car. I'd love to listen to podcasts. So um, it's very timely, <laughs> taking that feedback directly.
0: That's right. Tell your, tell your friend we listened and we've delivered exactly what they asked for.
1: Yes, this is for her. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, hey, it's been a busy couple of weeks in the legislative arena. The president of the United States issued something called an executive order specifically related to digital assets. You know, maybe before we jump in, can you just sort of explain to the folks that maybe aren't in the U.S. or don't pay attention to how uh, policy and law gets, gets set in the U.S.? Like, what is an executive order?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, executive orders are, are policy tools that the executive branch can use. It's a directive that they can issue in lieu of legislation coming from the legislative branch, and they don't they don't require approval from Congress. Congress can't just easily overturn them. They can pass legislation that might make it difficult or even impossible to carry out the order, but. Uh, only a sitting president can overturn executive orders. So they could be do- undone by this president or a future administration. So it's just another tool in the in the policy tool belt.
0: And specifically taking that route versus, say, asking Congress to draft and vote on a law, it's sort of a expedient path to instruct agencies in the executive branch to take some action.
1: Yeah, I think particularly... In sort of the political climate that we have now, legislation is not always the most expedient route. uh, So executive orders are are a great alternative to that.
0: And so diving specifically into this one, because I think I've been hearing for the last uh, 14 months since I joined Chainalysis, the industry wants more regulatory clarity. Did we get regulatory clarity with this executive order?
1: I'm not sure that we got regulatory clarity with this executive order but I think that some regulatory regulatory clarity could come from this order. And I think it's also really exciting to see that the administration is focusing on this and taking this, this industry seriously. It, you know, it indicates that the administration believes cryptocurrency or digital assets, as they call them throughout the executive order, are here to stay and that they want this unified approach to oversight and regulation of cryptocurrency.
0: Feels to me like a terrific move forward. I I read the order and generally thought it was positive, but I had a few people say, "Hey, that seemed like a a lot of words to say nothing." Maybe could you summarize like the high level things that will actually happen as a result of the of the executive order?
1: Yeah, absolutely, uh, and I agree. I think it was a much more positive um, document than than people feared it might be, uh, or from. Even what we've seen from administration officials from this administration in the past, which I think really demonstrates that the White House has taken the time and hired people who understand this space and want to take an approach that's well thought out and informed and informed by all of the players and not just led by the um, one agency in particular. But the executive order, it lays out six different objectives and three are sort of focused on the potential of crypto and three are focused on areas that the administration maybe finds concerning. So it's also interesting that they have that that balance there. So the objectives of, of the executive order are um, looking at how we can protect consumers and investors and businesses in this space. And this is something that a number of different government agencies have been focused on, whether it's law enforcement agencies involving or rather investigating digital asset um, scams or thefts or the CFTC or the SEC going after misleading digital assets. Uh, projects. And we've also seen warnings from the Federal Trade Commission. So I think that this is a continuation of all of all of the work that has been done on that front. And I think that's great because, you know, from, from chain analysis data, we see um, consistent growth of scams. And so that's, you know, concerning and definitely something that needs to be addressed. Um, Absolutely. I,
0: I think this topic of consumer protection is one that's gotten a little bit lost in the discourse. So we've seen, you know, particularly, since the invasion of Ukraine, the topic of sanctions evasion has become the sort of front page highlight, and I think there's been ongoing concern about you know things like ransomware or money laundering, which are legitimate, but I hear very few people focused on maybe the the lower level criminal activity, uh, which is targeting you know generally the less sophisticated retail investors who are getting tricked into a. Uh, fraud or a scam activity and then losing, you know, really meaningful amounts of money. It seems like that's actually an area that I would hope would gain more focus based on the volume of uh, impact that we're able to see in the chain analysis data.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, law enforcement and, and other agencies, they have limited resources. So they've likely been focused on the areas that have perhaps the largest national security impact, you know, investigating potential use by terrorists, or we just saw uh, a Wired article that came out about the takedown of the Welcome to Video site, which is a child sexual abuse material site. And of course, you know, those should be top priorities in investigations. But I think as these agencies have more capacity and more access to resources i do hope that they'll they'll focus more on that the scams and stolen funds and other areas where we see a lot of activity.
0: Yeah. I absolutely agree with the prioritization you laid out there. There's there's some big issues, but when it comes to the regulatory framework, you know, this idea that we can just snap snap fingers and digital assets cryptocurrency cease to exist seems like it's still being considered by some parts of the the legislative branch and rather than taking a more measured approach, which is like, okay, this thing's here. How can we make sure that potential harm is minimized and consumer protection is, is maximized? Back to the executive order. So, so we had areas of potential for crypto and three areas of concern. You were, mm-hmm. you were going through those.
1: Yeah. So the three areas that are, um, Sort of more focused on concern or, or consumer protection, uh, protecting global financial stability and mitigating systemic risk, um, and then mitigating the illicit finance and national security risks that that digital assets might pose if they're misused. And I think, of course, that's where uh, chain analysis really comes in. We have a lot of data on that um, and are able to provide a lot of insight into what is actually happening in the space. Uh, Using our blockchain analytics tools,
0: it's uh, it's kind of amazing. I was having a conversation with uh, with someone yesterday. I was down in Miami at the the Bitcoin. Conference happening down there, and
1: now you're just bragging. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was
0: uh, it, it was a short trip. I was in town for 24 hours for a couple of meetings, but I will say the weather in Miami is much nicer than Washington DC right at the moment. So yeah, it, it was a tough return this morning. We were talking a bit about this uh, this topic of kind of uh, rogue nation states or sanctions evasion via crypto. And, of course, everyone wanted to know about Russia. And I said, well, you know, our, we're keeping a close eye on it here at Chainalysis. You know, the data so far suggests that it's not happening in a widespread or at scale move from fiat into crypto or, or, you know, government usage of crypto to evade the sanctions. But I think people were shocked to hear because I said, you know, Iran has a really substantial mining operation. Where the last stat that I heard was, you know, they're profiting about a billion dollars a year mining and selling Bitcoin onto the open market. And then, of course, I think the North Koreans. We were able to observe about four hundred million in theft, where they were they were hacking into exchanges all around the world. And yeah, you know, so there there certainly is, you know, a fairly serious problem in the with rogue nation states using crypto. Even though Russia doesn't appear to have done this yet, some of these other countries who are on the uh, the bad actors list appear to have it, was there anything in the executive order that that would specifically seek to address that or, or mitigate it or challenge it in some way.
1: Yeah. So one of the objectives is, let's see, it literally says, mitigate the illicit finance and national security risks posed by the misuse of digital assets. And it talks about ensuring that the recommendations that the Financial Action Task Force puts out are implemented in countries around the world. Those, those are sort of standards for AML-CFT that This intergovernmental body puts out, and they put out guidance for digital assets, which they call virtual assets, in 2019, and so those have been sort of trickling through the process for all of the members of of FATF, and so we're seeing more and more regulation of of cryptocurrency businesses, which I think will certainly play a large role in in mitigating their their misuse. I think when bad actors are able to cash out at high risk exchanges that are abroad, that decreases the ability of uh, investigators to go after those assets and seize them. And so it's important that Uh, the push to implement those standards continues. And there've been a lot of successes there, right? Like we've seen some big high-profile cases like the investigation into the ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline, the recent Bitfinex hack investigation, which was the largest financial seizure ever, which I think is really impressive. And like this demonstrates if law enforcement and if government agencies have access to the tools that they need, they are able to go after
0: the illicit use of cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems kind of amazing for a technology that a lot of people regard as being totally anonymous, untraceable, and permissionless. The law enforcement and governments around the globe have made some pretty spectacular arrests and seizures uh, that kind of point to the, the contrary to that sentiment. Maybe shifting gears a little bit on the perspective on the executive order, is there anything there You know, the industry participants, you know, so exchanges or people maybe in mining or trading around cryptocurrency or people developing technology, anything in there that you think is of significant concern or would uh, force a force a change or that potentially they they should be clamoring about? I haven't heard any any broadly negative reactions, but I don't know if I, I read closely enough all the fine print.
1: No, I think, I think what you're saying is right. I, and I think that there are certainly areas where the industry can really help to educate the government. I think it's important that people be cognizant that these government officials, this is not all that they're doing. They have a number of different things on their plate. Like you and I spend all day, every day, only thinking and looking at crypto. And I don't know about you, but I have trouble keeping up. So I can only imagine... <laughs> how difficult it would be if this was just, you know, a piece of your portfolio. So I think it's it's important that the people be sympathetic to that and really work to take a, you know, a productive, constructive approach with the government agencies that are working on all of these reports that will come out of the executive order and make sure that they're trying to be as helpful as possible and, uh, you know, sympathetic to the fact that this might not be what these people specialize in.
0: That's such a great point. I mean, I like you said, we do this every day, and I still wake up fourteen months into the job. I wake up every day and learn about something I didn't know existed yesterday. So
1: absolutely,
0: uh, as uh, you know, somebody that's part time aware of the industry, it's probably much more challenging to stay on top of these things. Yeah. I think the executive order directed a few different agencies to produce uh, some reports and recommendations. Is it possible for you to just summarize those for us? Like, what, what will we see happen next, I guess, is really my question.
1: Yeah, we're going to see a series of reports. Many of them are led by the Secretary of the Treasury, the Attorney General, the Director of the Office of Science and Technology. And they're all of these coordinated reports, many of which are due within 180 days, uh, looking at different components of the crypto space, looking at the future of money and payment systems or whether legislative changes are necessary to issue a CBDC or whether the different agencies that have crypto oversight under their remit, whether they need more authority. Yeah. And so asking for legislative proposals that would address that.
0: Over the next six months, we'll actually start to see some, at least reports, but potentially action come out of a number of executive agencies.
1: Exactly. And we'll see... Um, Legislative proposals as well as, uh, that were sort of requested as part of the executive order. So we might get a hint of, of what's coming more concretely in the future as well. Although I'll say having this executive order put out doesn't seem to have stopped Congress. There have been a number of bills related to cryptocurrency regulation that have been released recently. So it'll be interesting to see whether those are passed or whether those are just considered sort of draft discussion bills. And they wait to, to see the results of the executive order before trying to push forward with legislation.
0: Well, and I think we saw a couple of weeks ago, one in particular that I think got the the crypto industry at large a little, a little hot from Senator Warren, co-sponsored by uh, Senator Warner. Can you give us a quick rundown of what was in the bill?
1: That bill, just called the Closing Sanctions Loopholes Act, it gives the president authority to apply secondary sanctions on foreign crypto exchanges uh, if they are facilitating transactions for sanctioned Russian entities. I think the interesting thing about her bill is that everything in it is something that Treasury already has the authority to do. They already have the ability to levy sanctions, which we're seeing them do, right? Like we just earlier this week saw them sanction Hydra, which is a a Russian darknet marketplace, and Garantex, which is a Russian cryptocurrency exchange. And a lot of the other provisions in the bill are also things that FinCEN or Treasury, OFAC, they all have the authority to do these things. But what they actually need is more resources. And I think that if, if policymakers are are really concerned about mitigating the illicit use of cryptocurrencies, of making sure crypto isn't used for sanctions evasion, then they should be helping these agencies to address and mitigate those risks. They need to be providing funding for more staff, more resources, more training, and really making sure that these agencies are are set up to succeed on that front.
0: I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. It seems like all of our customers and partners you know, are definitely looking for more expertise, more resources, more funding to acquire technology. Uh, so that they're operating, you know, with an advantage over the, the criminal actors out there. So maybe shifting gears a little bit, you know, it seems like cryptocurrency is becoming a pretty hot topic from a political standpoint. I think broadly, the Republican caucus seems to be lining up as uh, pro-crypto. Many Democrats seem to be lining up as uh, negative on crypto. What's your take on, you know, upcoming midterm elections? Do we see crypto as being like a wedge issue that wins some votes on either side of the aisle?
1: (laughs) I mean, I think it certainly has been a popular topic. Uh, I think that politicians are... You know, like everyone else waking up and seeing that, oh, this is this is a a thing here and it's crypto is here to stay. A lot of my constituents are interested in this or my would be constituents are interested in this. And a lot of Americans are investing in crypto and they have an interest in seeing politicians in office who will promote realistic and responsible regulations for the space, you know, that are actually manageable. I would say, I think a couple of years ago, I would have agreed with you that the crypto advocates were really more on the Republican side and the the folks who are less excited about crypto were on the Democrat side. But I, I do think we're seeing a shift. I think that increasingly Democrats are becoming more interested in this. They just, they want to make sure that the concerns they have, for example, about investor protection, that those are addressed, but we've seen... Um, Folks like Senator Gillibrand has announced that she's, she's releasing a bill with Senator Lummis uh, that will be a, a comprehensive regulation of cryptocurrency, and, and she's certainly not the only one. So I think it's exciting to see sort of more education in that space and uh, more bipartisan collaboration.
0: That would be terrific if we could get both sides of the aisle pulling in favor of this topic. It it feels like a bipartisan issue, right? Effective regulation, support for innovation. There's not a lot to argue with there, in in my opinion. Uh, and I think you have a a broad constituency, uh, you know, across the country that would would back candidates who are, are driving forward on that platform. Something a little whack. Someone passed me a note. So Andrew Yang, former presidential candidate, and I guess former candidate for mayor of New York City launched a DAO called Lobby Three. So it's a it's a DAO dedicated to lobbying on Capitol Hill. I I don't even know how that works because you have to be registered to be a lobbyist. I think uh, at least to the do, United yeah. states publics. So how does a DAO become a lobby? Do you have any idea how this works? I I was I, <laughs> I was wondering what this is when I read about.
1: Honestly, it. I don't. But I think it's it's really interesting. I think. It might be easier for a DAO to raise money, sort of mm. pack style. But I, yep. I agree with you. I'm not sure how they go about doing the lobbying on the Hill, but I, who knows? I've learned I'm really bad at predicting anything in crypto. So who knows <laughs> what will happen?
0: So. <laughs> we, uh, You know, the the core idea, though, of being able to fundraise via DAOs seems to be really impactful. Like we've seen, you know, massive amount of money be contributed to projects like that group that was trying to buy an early version of the Constitution. We've seen other DAOs that are kind of pooling funds for investing or, you know, art collecting. So I think on some level it makes sense to me that we could have a DAO that you know functions like a PAC, but doesn't require that necessarily you have the, the sophistication or the machinery of, of some of these really big political action committees. But it, it'll be curious. Like I, I, almost wonder if it will end up hiring you know more traditional and registered lobbyists that they just pay out of the DAO treasury.
1: Yeah, Um, absolutely. That would certainly be one way to do it. You know, use the DAO voting to decide which group to go with and what they should be focused on and and then have those people carry out the work on behalf of the DAO.
0: I think, you know, more grassroots in politics seems to me like generally a good thing on balance and I was always a fan of the Yang Gang, so I'm I'm going to keep an eye on that one. We'll, we'll see how that develops over time. You know, I think one of the other pieces in the executive order, and we heard Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, made a speech earlier in the week that I think was received incredibly well. I read nothing but positive sentiment about it. One of the big takeaways in both her speech and the EO was this focus on innovation. Mm-hmm. What does that actually mean from a policy standpoint? Uh, like, I know there's, Thousands and thousands of people who are moving into the Web three cryptocurrency space, eager to write software to create new things on this kind of infrastructure layer that's been built on the blockchain networks. When the government thinks about innovation, what do they what do they really mean there?
1: You know, I agree. I think Secretary Yellen's speech was was really interesting, and it was definitely a different sh- uh, tone shift or shift in tone, I guess, from past comments that she's made about cryptocurrency, sort of equating cryptocurrency to, you know, terrorist money. So I think that this is showing, you know, an evolution of her views on on digital assets. And I, I think it's amazing that she dedicated a whole speech to to just crypto. The way that policymakers are thinking about innovation, hopefully, is, you know, ensuring that we have US companies that are developing in this space, that we have, you know, that intellectual property being developed here. We have that economic activity here because it it promotes, you know, not just sort of economic growth, but also our national security interests and and makes the United States more competitive. So I think that's really important and... One way to ensure that you're continuing to promote innovation is to make sure that you are having public-private dialogues with the industry, that you, that you really understand how the technology works, how it's being used, and that any regulations that are put in place are feasible and that they are proportionate to the risks that are proposed by the technology.
0: So in essence, like enough regulation that we get to that level of consumer protection, but not so much that it makes it hard for you know my friends who are starting a, a new software company to get up and running as a small team that doesn't have an army of uh, compliance professionals or uh, the ability to to go through kind of a years long regulatory review cycle. Like that's the balance they're really trying to strike when they talk about innovation.
1: It's important to have the guardrails in place because you want to know sort of what those are, but you want to make sure that they are not so stringent that they are preventing projects from developing in the first place and that they're not quashing the potential for for innovation.
0: We've seen different approaches kind of on a global perspective, like the United Kingdom as an example, I think has basically made it impossible to get a regulatory approval, except for a handful of exchanges. So almost everybody that's applied to be licensed as a cryptocurrency exchange in the United Kingdom has been has been rejected. Very short list of companies have made it through that process.
1: I think that's true. And I think what I have heard is that is in part because they need more staff to help them process all of those those registrations. So we'll see what comes of that. The UK just announced recently that they want to be and I'm wondering if they're following on the footsteps of the executive order that they want yeah. to be a, a leader in the digital asset space. So we'll see if they start putting more more resources towards that and helping to grow the the ecosystem there as well.
0: That's a great point. And then I know you know our, a couple of our colleagues uh, were in Dubai last week because Dubai and the UAE have also laid claim to wanting to be the global financial center for digital assets and cryptocurrency. And they're making a huge push to bring some of the, you know, the large global organizations building in that space to to actually operate from Dubai. Uh so it seems like there's a bit of a race on both sides of this, both, you know, restrictive legislation, you know, embracing the innovation and potential growth that comes from, you know, being the the host country of some of these these companies as they're developing new and exciting technology. You broke down the executive order into six objectives three on the negative, which we've talked about, the three positive topics. Can you summarize those for us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the executive order talks about the importance of reinforcing U.S. leadership in the global financial system. It also talks about promoting safe access and affordable financial services, uh, as well as supporting technological advances that promote responsible development and use of digital assets. And I was really heartened to see all of these included because I think that you know there are some unique ways that digital assets can can play a role in promoting safe and affordable access to financial services uh, the executive order, notes that many Americans are underbanked and that the cost of cross-border payments are very high. And I read actually an interesting statistic from the FDIC that said in 2019, 5.4% of the United States or of U.S. households were unbanked, which meaning they didn't have a checking or savings account uh, at a bank. And that that was a pretty astonishing statistic to me. I didn't realize it was so high. And there's a lot of reasons for that, that they noted distrust in banks or the inability to meet minimum requirements uh, imposed by banks. But it'll be interesting to see the role that cryptocurrency plays in addressing sort of the banking needs of the unbanked. Just today, actually, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, OCC, uh, Michael Sue gave a, a speech and he's he noted it was it was also in cryptocurrency that of the underbanked just different than unbanked but of the underbanked 37% say that they own crypto compared with just 10% of the fully banked and i thought that was really interesting and you know we've seen some pushes in that direction with you know El Salvador adopting bitcoin as legal tender which allows for remittances to to be passed more easily in cryptocurrency especially as traditional remittance systems like MoneyGram or Western Union, they charge very large fees. It's not that cryptocurrency doesn't have fees, but they can certainly be lower. lower. And as we see more third-party payment processors like PayPal or Square, maybe they're called Block now,
0: (laughs) as they get into the
1: game, that'll really enable folks to transfer money and pay directly for things with cryptocurrency.
0: Yeah, it's such a good point. I had not heard that statistic about 5.4% because I think there's about 130 million households. So if my quick math is correct, yeah, that's six to seven million households in the United States don't have bank accounts. That's staggering statistic yeah. to me. I would have never guessed it was that high. And so if there's there's an opportunity for crypto to play a role in bringing more people into the financial system, that would be tremendous. Although I think it connects to this innovation topic because I know today, you know, my own experience using cryptocurrency is is a little bit daunting, right? I'm always, you know, before I hit that buy or transfer button, uh, there's a there's a moment of trepidation. Like, am I sending it to the right wallet address? <laughs> and so the the end user complexity, I think, has uh, has a little ways to go before maybe it's realistic, but. Hopefully all that venture capital investment that's poured into crypto over the last 12, 18 months. Uh, I know there's some really smart people out there who are working on these sorts of problems. I hope to see some really exciting solutions start to roll out into the market. and Impact on real people in their everyday lives is uh, what we have to look forward to. Yeah,
1: it's definitely an exciting, exciting time to be in crypto.
0: Clark, this has been super fun. It's been very illuminating. I learned a bunch. I hope our listeners did as well. Thank you for joining us. And we're going to have you back on the on the podcast maybe in the next six months once we start to see some action coming out of the executive order. That sounds great. Looking forward to it. Thank you for joining me today on Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. If you enjoyed our discussion, please subscribe and post a review of the episode. And remember, sharing your public key is encouraged.